Welcome to episode eight of What Would You Say You Do Here? Today we're going to be talking about when to stop talking and when to start building. This is probably one of the more challenging problems that every product manager deals with, right, Katie? Absolutely. Especially when you're early in your career, but I would say it's a problem that never fully goes away. Yeah, very true. Um, And so I think many of us have been stuck in that kind of analysis paralysis state where we don't feel we have enough data or feedback or direction from leadership to know exactly what we need to build, but we know we need to build something. And so it's oftentimes, it's easy just to keep, you know, crunching on the data and reformulating your hypotheses. But, you know, at some point you need to move on, right? I've always loved the term analysis paralysis because I think it really fits the feeling that you get when you're confronted with so much data that you really just no longer know how to make a decision. Yeah. It could also be when you don't have enough data and you're trying to make sense of a bunch of incomplete data sets or, you know, sparse data sets. So, but yeah, like we said, at some point you just need to move on. Um, so we've already covered in a previous episode, you know, how to use data, what, what typical data sources are good inputs into building a, a hypothesis and then validating it. So we're not going to really focus on that too much today. We're going to, however, talk a little bit more about what you can do to ensure you know the success of your product and your, your MVP. Yeah. So I think the important piece is you've gotten your data, you, you've done all the stuff that we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, now you have to make a decision. And sometimes that can be the hardest part of all of this. I think it's tough for us as product managers to uh, start building because we are so afraid of failure. We've often, you know, had lots of success, you know, academically and there's a lot of type A uh, PMs out there. But I think the key to moving forward within your PM career is to, to learn to be okay with failure and to have a few failures under your belt. Absolutely. It's it's a tough lesson to learn, especially when you're in charge of multi-million dollars worth of projects and you have all these people counting on you. And basically at the core of product management, you're being paid for your decision-making skills. So when you do have that failure, it feels like your whole skill set is being called into question. But it's not. Everybody fails sometime. It's okay. Absolutely. And I, I definitely think I, I learn more from my failures than from my successes. So there's a lot to be said for that. But how can we how can we fail early uh, in order to you know get that out of the way? I'd say one one good approach is testing your hypothesis uh, using uh, very like low fidelity uh, mockups or uh, wireframes and getting feedback from that before you've ever had to actually like really spend a lot of time on a requirements document or have an engineer write a single line of code. Oh yeah, it's great to know that a, a user hates the process when you're when they're just looking at a mock-up versus when you've gone through weeks or months of building and you roll it out there and get really bad feedback once it's live. So getting that feedback when they're looking at a mock-up or when you're talking to them in an interview, way better. Absolutely. Another thing that I think that's helpful is just to, you know, define your success criteria up front. Make sure that you understand what the outcomes are that you're striving towards. And that at least keeps you focused on, you know, what you should be building. And if you're, you know, writing requirements and you realize your ideas are diverging from, you know, the stated goal of the overall, you know, feature or project, you know that you've probably already failed uh, to some 
some degree in your you know requirement writing process. Yep. It's definitely better to go ahead and fail sooner rather than later so that if you're failing early in the process, if you're failing before you've actually begun the process, then you aren't failing after you've perfected every single tiny detail and work for months, sometimes quarters or years before you're ever even building anything, only to find out at that point that something's not working. So that fail early philosophy really is sound. Absolutely. I actually worked with a guy early on in my career who was a contractor with the uh, the Navy and built some very complex system where he spent like five years building it. And then eventually like the Navy just scrapped the whole project. So it never actually got launched. Oh, that's so demoralizing. <laughs> it's awful. Right? Like that's, that's probably the worst case scenario yes. you, you could ask for. So Yes. But also, yeah, I think we're advocating for the complete opposite of that, right? (laughs) Don't wait years to find out that something isn't going to work. Absolutely. All right. So how do you mitigate risk? We're talking about analysis paralysis and potential failure. And obviously, it's better if you go into something with as little risk as possible. There's risk in every new product or feature. There's always going to be risk. The key is mitigating it. Absolutely. And so when you're starting to identify like what are the possible risks in your project, you want to think of the very common things like the people that are on the team that are going to be building it. Like what what happens if one of your key engineers with a very specific skill set leaves the team or the company? Or has a baby, goes on vacation. Exactly. Um, What happens if you're dependent on another team to deliver something and they are late, uh, you know, they don't meet the timeline? What about if you're working with an external, you know, partner uh, and they can't meet your timeline? So these are all the kind of the common scenarios you want to think through. And then figure out like what, how do you mitigate it in the event that that terrible thing happens? I think also something important is to make sure that you've done your due diligence. You understand the market, you've done your competitive analysis, uh, you know what everyone else in the marketplace is building so that you really understand how your product, how your new feature, whatever it is, fits into that and how it makes you competitive or helps you stay competitive. Yeah. And part of that due diligence is getting that early feedback, right? Mm -hmm. From simple designs or mock-ups. You could even do, if you've got like a interactive or clickable mock-up, that's great. Those are getting, uh, you know, more and more realistic these days with a lot of the tooling out there. Uh, There's also like, you know, techniques like the man behind the curtain or a mechanical Turk where you can, you know, sort of fake a lot of the automation or the programmatic work. Uh, by having a person like manually complete the task. But really what you're trying to get out of that is, is this process working? Is Am I meeting the user's expectations? And am I accomplishing their their needs and objectives? Yeah, and I, I've worked for some companies that did this in a lot of different ways. I worked with one company that would occasionally draw pictures and go out and talk to people and say, you know, if you were to click on this page, where would you click? And they literally did it with physical pieces of paper, all the way up to having the entire application mocked up in a clickable fake UI. So, you know, there's two extremes and the Mechanical Turk, that's that's an excellent concept that should definitely be part of your repertoire to make sure that you can mitigate that risk. Absolutely. Also, it's good to get feedback from other people, whether it's engineers uh, on your team or other teams that haven't been too close to the problem. Or other PMs. Exactly. Someone that uh, can give you just, uh, you know, look at the problem with, you know, a fresh set of eyes and a different perspective. And sometimes, you know, kind of let you know whether you've like veered off track. 
Yeah, it's the worst thing in the world to get to the end of planning or you've spent weeks thinking about a problem and analyzing all the data only to have someone see it and say, why did you do it this way? Why didn't you do this? And it's something so obvious that you didn't notice because you were too close to the project. So talk to people. I don't think I don't think there's any shame in that. I think sometimes people like to kind of play it close to the vest and they don't want to share their plans or their process at all because they're a little bit afraid of, I don't know, someone else taking over competition for jobs. I'm not sure. But I think it's actually a really healthy thing to do to, to talk about what you're building, especially with your other PMs and talk Talk to your engineers because they have a different take on things. Yeah. And, and something I really liked from a previous role was uh, our requirements document actually had required sign-offs from someone on engineering, uh, ideally someone on your team, another product manager that was familiar with the problem area, uh, someone from design and someone from QA. And you had to have all four of those. And then it, that kind of gives you like all of the perspective you need. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I like that. And if you're not doing something like that, I highly recommend having some kind of peer review process in your kind of requirement writing process. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important, since, especially since you mentioned QA, to have your test plan well covered. Um, I think this is a mistake a lot of PMs make is that they don't consider how things will be tested. That might be mitigating risk pretty close to to launch if you're handing it off to QA. But the QA folks are going to be the ones who are really going to hammer things home. You know, their whole job is to break stuff. So make sure that you have a really good test plan that will help them get in there and try and break things. And that's going to mitigate a lot of that risk. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I've seen this so many times where QA had pointed out like, hey, you know, we don't actually have the right data to test this in this in this fashion. And had we not called that out at the beginning of the project, it would have definitely derailed the entire entire thing because it took, you know, weeks or months to get the right data or to build a test harness or whatever it was. So that's why it's always good to get uh, QA's input at the very beginning. Absolutely. I think sometimes we fail to plan for QA time, for adequate QA time and making sure that you have your test plan solid will help you understand how much time they're going to need to test things. And that way you don't end up rushing at the end to get things tested in too short a time frame where it, you know, it's not adequate. Yeah. And, and after you've covered that step, also make sure you've got a plan for how you're going to get feedback from the users, from customers, uh, ensure that you've got the right instrumentation in place to, to collect the data that you need to actually measure your success criteria or your metrics. That's something that could all easily be overlooked. And then you get ready to launch and you realize, oh, we're not actually collecting this data and I can't measure whether or not I've made the impact I hope to have. Yeah, that, that's part of mitigating risk. It's part of failing early. And it's also part of just your peace of mind. If you know you have all of your bases covered, you know, this is one of the bases. This is something that, that absolutely needs to be covered. And it's going to help you know immediately, just as soon as you release it, what's going on with that product. You're not just sending it out into ether and never looking at it again. Yeah, absolutely. Something you can do to help accelerate the delivery of a project is to parallelize as many of the development tasks or any other tasks as possible in order to reduce the delivery timeline. That was really big in my last role. We were always trying to figure out how do we, how can we get a 12 week project delivered in four weeks? That makes sense. And I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but contingency plans. So all of your dependencies need to be covered by some kind of contingency. We talked earlier about if somebody goes on vacation or announces that they're going on paternity leave or maternity leave or whatever it is, uh, you need to make sure that you have, you know, a backup plan. If you're depending on other teams, if you're depending on partners, you know, maybe, you know, a third 
third party that's helping you build part of this or is delivering some part of the feature for you. You need to make sure that you are prepared if that doesn't happen. So I think that probably the easiest way forward is to plan an MVP. Ooh, an MVP. That sounds like a whole episode's worth of material, right? It is a controversial topic. It's a surprisingly controversial topic, in my opinion. I don't I don't understand why it's so controversial. If we were just talking earlier, but like I, I was interviewing for some positions recently and every every PM screen would ask me, you know, how do you define an MVP? And I think the real reason of that is, is because no one knows what it is. And they're, they're really trying to see if you have... No, they're really just asking you, hey, do you know what an MVP is? They really just is? want to know what it is. <laughs> That's hilarious. I got asked this question earlier today, too. So it's it's a constant topic for product managers. How the heck do you define an MVP? And I think the easiest answer is everyone defines it differently. It's different depending on the product you're building, depending on the company that you're working for, the amount of risk they're willing to take. Um, but I think at its at its core, it's the smallest functional product that solves a problem. Yes. And something that I think we've, we've both heard about is a difference between a minimum viable product and a minimum lovable product. What are your thoughts on that, Katie? I like the idea. I like, I like what they're trying to say, but I don't care so much. I mean, it's, it would be great if all of our products were loved, but I think it's more important that our products solve problems. You wouldn't necessarily say that you, you love Jira, but it solves a problem. Very true. Maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> Nobody likes Jira. It does Jira. create a lot of problems too, though. <laughs> Scratch that. So yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to to love every single product or have every single product be loved that you put out there, but you do have to have it be usable. And I think that's really what they're trying to say when they talk about minimum lovable products. Yeah, usable is good. How do you know if it's usable? Well, that's where you get user feedback and internal feedback, right? Whether it's alpha testing or beta testing, making sure it's actually accomplishing the goal, right? And that's where it's helpful to have those success criteria defined so that you can really easily evaluate whether or not it's, it's solving the problem. So when we were putting this together, I think I started describing to you this idea of a wheel, someone wanting to deliver a car, but they could only deliver a wheel first. And that really doesn't do anybody any good. And then there was something like a skateboard. And then you came up and said that you actually knew who came up with that concept. Yeah, this is this is a little cartoon that I saw in a presentation a while back by Henrik Nieberg. Yeah, his great example is that you don't iterate on a car, like you don't arrive at a car by starting with like a single tire. You start with something that accomplishes the goal. Like I need to get from A to B easily. So like the, the MVP in that scenario is a skateboard. And then like, how do you iterate on that? But you move to like a scooter. And then a bicycle and a motorcycle. And you see that's that's the evolution of a product, right? Each stage is solving the problem, but you know, as you progress, you're solving it better. So some people often think like, well, if I build the foundation, it'll be easy to put like the building on top of it. But like the foundation alone oftentimes does not solve the problem. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. So you've got this product out there that people can't actually use. So they're still waiting for you to deliver that car. And I think that's why that this image resonates so well with anyone in software development. And I think it's it's probably overused at this point, but I think it's overused for a reason and that it's yeah. really good. It makes sense. It makes it, it makes the concept really, really clear and understandable. So in my history, I one of the first products that I ever launched, I had all these ideas for like what was going to make it super successful and com- really competitive with other products on the market. And I knew that many of our custom our existing customers had Salesforce as their CRM. So 
I was convinced that we had to launch with a turnkey Salesforce integration. And once, you know, we started, I started like working through the problems with uh, our engineering team, I realized, oh, that would actually like triple the actual timeline of being able to deliver the MVP. So in the end, I I agreed that it wasn't worth it and we could build that later on. And so we, we ended up launching without the Salesforce integration, which I think was fine. But, you know, it, it just goes to show you that like, what you think is absolutely necessary in the beginning isn't always truly necessary just to have a product out there and solving problems. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I actually have one right now that I'm working on, kind of a similar outcome. I was told about a, a customer problem. So I went about you know my, my research, looking into it and talked to my designer. And we came up with this brilliant solution that would solve the customer's problem. And then I went back and met with the customer and they said, oh, well, we just needed to do this. So all these beautiful bells and whistles that I'd worked with the UX team to put on, yeah, they, they didn't need any of that. So it kind of took the wind out of my sails a bit. But in the end, <laughs> we have a product that they're going to love because it's completely usable. I can get it out a lot quicker and it solves the problem. So no need for bells and whistles. And if it turns out that it's a really popular product, I can go back and add bells and whistles later. Exactly. And think of how much time you saved by not building those bells and whistles initially, right? Yes. And think about how much time I saved by talking to the customer before I actually started development. Great idea. (laughs) So yeah, I think I think something that I try to do with every MVP is consider the idea of what if I never get more time to come back to this? What if what if this is it? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's not to say that I don't plan for a phase two or phase three or however many phases it is. Ideally, you know, I, I get to keep on iterating over the end of time till, till it's the most perfect product that's ever been. But whatever I release, I try and think about making sure that it would be okay as is if I was never allowed to come back and touch it. Because sometimes you get pulled off onto other priorities. Sometimes you get moved teams, you know, uh, things happen. Yeah, I can't tell you how many projects or features I worked on where it was always like, oh, we'll take, we'll handle that really critical thing in phase two or, or V2. And then V2 never happens because like you said, you know, priorities change, the market changes, COVID happens. And then all yeah, of a sudden, like yeah. your priorities have completely changed <laughs> and your customers have different problems that need to be solved. So that's, that's life, right? You need to yeah. be ready to expect the uh, unexpected. And so if it is something that totally necessary get it built in the mvp in phase one so bottom line just get out and build it (laughs) i think that's it yeah do you want to say that with more conviction or do you like it that way (laughs) no i'll I'll, do it again just get out and build it i like it so remember that it's okay to fail and i really think probably experience is the other thing experience is going to help you learn how to do this without as much pain Yeah, it just helps to get a few reps or many, many reps kind of under your belt to start to understand like, what does an MVP look like? What does it feel like? And how far do you need to go to make it great? All right. So remember to get out there and build and uh, eventually stop talking. Katie, I noticed you did not have a drink tonight. Am Am I drinking alone? Oh, we should talk about that. No, I, I'm drinking. I have a Waterloo sparkling water grape soda, zero calories, zero sugar. Well, now I feel bad because I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> what kind of beer? So this is a crazy one. I wasn't sure about it, but what was it anyways? It's a sour 
double IPA. Wow. And it's I didn't even know that was a thing. It's really weird. I didn't either. I never heard of it, never tried it before, but it it starts off very like hoppy and fruity and then it like it's sour. And the first few sips I hated it, but actually it's growing <laughs> on me now. So <laughs> as all the best beers do. <laughs> you got to be willing to try things. I miss working with you cuz we used to take our trips to the liquor store to go find out what new beers they had in stock. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that was fun. Those were the days. On that note, it was great talking with you all. Thank you, Product Land, and we'll talk to you next time. Ciao. Adios. Sayonara. That was mine. <laughs> I still haven't learned more ways to say goodbye. <laughs> Aloha. Aloha. <laughs>